you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 2. This morning we are beginning a kind of uh, mini-series of sermons around this theme, preparing for the future. Uh, We're doing this on the eve of 2016, not just because uh, the new year is a time for resolutions. Uh, In many ways, there's nothing special about the new year. It's just uh, one more marking of time as our life proceeds towards that final day. In fact, very often the new year becomes a way of us making excuses for bringing about change in our lives that we know that we need. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to go on that diet January 1st. As soon as the new year comes, I'm going to change what I'm doing. Or I'm going to start reading my Bible every day when the new year starts. And of course, the new year starts and what happens? None of those, none of those resolutions actually come to resolution in our lives. That being said, the turn of the new year does have an implicit sense of importance to us, doesn't it? Because we are creatures bound by time, we we mark every moment of our lives by time. Whether we want to admit it or not, whether we wear a watch or not, uh, the sun comes up, the sun goes down. We've had one day and we must have sleep or else we cannot continue. And so by the passing of one year into another, we do have this kind of innate sense of things starting fresh, things beginning to... Uh, to, to, to blossom and blood anew, perhaps even the opportunities for us to start afresh in our life and in our relationships. And so it does become uh, an easy time for us to look back on our life, whether individually or together, to reflect on where we're at, to evaluate where we're at, and to begin to think about where we should go in the future. And of course, gathered here today, we're thinking of our life together as God's people. And as we look on the horizon of what is to come, uh, we we have to be honest with ourselves and say the biggest thing coming for this church is the arrival of a new pastor, Lord willing, this summer. Uh, We can either kind of uh, cover our eyes and our ears and just just think, well, the search crew is going to handle that. We're just going to go on like nothing's changing. It's going to be okay. Or more realistically, more, I would even say spiritually helpful, we can look at that change head on and begin preparing for it. As, as uh, for some of you, maybe a really happy thing. <laughs> uh, for others of you like me, a very bittersweet time. But what is best for us is to say, God is at work in our lives. God is doing something and therefore let us be ready for it. Let us be prepared for it. Let us embrace it. In anticipation of this transition, we want to spend our Sunday mornings, especially over the next few weeks, seeking God together about this event, desiring to know how to think and how to feel about what is to come. And so next week in the 930 Bible study time, uh, as well as for the community group studies, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, material, engaging in activities that would cause us to, to, to think through who we are as a church, not just doctrinally, not just ministerially, but communally, who we are gathered together as the people of God called Crossway Christian Church and how, how that perhaps needs to change or how we need to, to maintain the same as we move forward to this transition. Some of you, um, once again, why beat around the bush, right? Let's just be honest. Uh, some, uh, some here, some who are not here, don't make those times a priority. They don't make the, the 930 gathering a priority. They don't make community groups a priority. And, and let, let me just challenge you that especially as we begin this new year with what is coming up, to change that orientation in your thinking, to make those times a priority because they're more than just about learning. 
If you are under the mistaken belief that when we gather together around this book, it is just so that we can learn what it says, then, then you've been duped somewhere along the way about what the Christian life is. Yes, it is about learning the book, but learning the book because it brings us closer to God. And we can sit in our homes and do Bible study all day long, but what God has ordained is that we be part of a people. We once were not a people, but now we have become a people. We heard from 1 Peter several weeks ago. And so we need to embrace that as part of our identity. Uh, sometimes we come together and we think, well, I've heard this before. That's fine. The people sitting around you have not. Nor may they benefit from the experience that you have had and you can invest in them through the discussion time. Or if we're humble, maybe we can learn something from somebody else. But our desire in those times, as well as this time, but especially in the times on Sunday evening and Sunday morning at 9.30, the time is not just for learning as God's people, but growing deeper in our fellowship as God's people. Learning to love one another more sacrificially the way that God has called us to, the way Christ has set the example of. So this morning, we have a kind of introduction of sorts to what will be our, or what has been our annual series of sermons at the beginning of every year, our Pillars series, or Pillars of the Christian Life. Uh, we're still going to begin that next week, but rather than, than jump right back to Romans for one week and then come out for two weeks, as the elders discussed about what we should be doing, we thought it might be helpful to kind of prime the pump. Uh, is, is all of these activities designed to, 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 to cause us to think and to, to feel and to love and to come together as a, a church in pursuing this new pastor and, and transitioning to, to whatever that means for our life as a congregation. And it might be helpful to preemptively begin by thinking about what it means for us to be unified as the people of God specifically the people of God in this place. And so to, to think about what that means to prepare for the future by being a unified body of Christ, we want to look at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5. Now, those are the verses we're going to unpack this morning, but to get the larger context, I want to begin reading at verse 27 of chapter 1. So either just look up the page or across the, to the other page or flip back the page, but we're going to begin reading at chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says to the Philippians, Only now let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. In verse 27, Paul says that 
his presence or his absence with them. Remember, Paul is probably most likely writing in jail at this point, and the Philippians have, have, have sent someone to check on him to see how he's doing. They're worried about him, and now his response is this letter. He wants to come and be with them, but he can't. He's hindered from doing so because he's being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. And in verse 27, Paul says that his presence or his absence with the Philippians should be no indicator of how they live. In other words, I want you to press on and live how you should live all the time, whether or not I'm there. In his commentary, Matthew Henry makes this astute, and I think for us especially appropriate word of application. He says this, our religion must not be bound up in the hands of our ministers. Whether ministers come or go, Christ is always at hand. He is nigh to us, never far from us, and hastens his second coming. Regardless of who stands behind this pulpit, regardless of of who gathers together in elders meetings to seek to shepherd your hearts, you as a believer are called to live a certain way. That never changes because that is rooted in our identity in Christ himself. And so this is why he gives them this exhortation, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That, That verse bears meditation, extended meditation. It's the kind of all-pervasive command that can easily hang above everything that we do as Christians. In fact, that phrase manner of life is a translation of a word that often has a political tone in Greek. It speaks to how one lives as a citizen of a country. In fact, Paul uses the same word uh, in the same context later in chapter 3, and he makes this clear. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here I think it's appropriate to understand Paul to have that same kind of tonality to what he's saying here. The manner in which we live as Christians should point to the fact that there is no priority, no allegiance before Christ himself. In other words, we live in such a way that our heavenly citizenship is put on display and takes priority in our lives. It allows us to live lives that are in fact worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? What does it mean to live worthy of the gospel? Matthew Harmon helpfully explains, the gospel not only gives life, but provides a pattern of life for the believer as well. To live worthy of the gospel of Christ does not mean we do something to earn God's grace. Nor does it mean that we work to pay God back for what he has done for us in the gospel. Rather, it means that those who have entered into the kingdom of God through faith in Christ must live in a manner that reflects the way Christ the King lived. That's what Paul's talking about there. As Paul shows in uh, those verses right there, it involves unity. He says, only let your manner of, of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come or absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Part of the manner of life worthy of the gospel is about being together, about being together for the gospel, he says. And so Paul takes a brief pause to explain how suffering should not deter this. And then he comes back in chapter 2 to unpack what does this look like? What does unity worthy of the gospel look like in our lives? That is God's concern in these verses, which means it ought to be our concern. But not just in a general sense. I think that in the specific task of transition before us, it's essential that we understand what Paul says here. For one of the greatest temptations for us both individually and as a congregation, is to lose the spiritual binding which holds us together. We should work against that intentionally, striving for unity as 
a church body. In these verses this morning, Paul is going to explain, number one, what spiritual unity looks like, as well as the why and how of our pursuit of it. He begins in verse 1 by showing us the basis for spiritual unity. The basis for spiritual unity. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, do this. The so at the beginning of the verse ties uh, what, what we're going to read in these verses logically to what he has just said about having a, a gospel-worthy manner of life. The ifs, though, might be confusing. Paul is using a kind of if-then argument. So you, you may have seen, uh, I'm sure it's some movie or television show where one character looks at another and says, if there is anything good left in you, you will help us. You will do this thing for this person. There's kind of this emotive appeal, wondering, is there anything, is there any good in you that would lead you to this? Well, that's not what Paul's thinking about here. Remember, Paul planted the church at Philippi. He, he, he spent years with them. He knows them. In chapter 1, he says, I, I am thankful for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until he knows these things are true. These people, they are genuine believers. It's the ifs aren't conditional, but rather a way of leaning into the Philippians and saying, if these things are true, I know they're true. I know they're true because they're true. This is how you should live. Strive for unity. Since they have received such blessings from God, their lives ought to reflect the effects of that grace. But what are, what are these blessings? First of all, notice God's people have experienced encouragement in Christ. Our union with God's Son should be emboldening our faith and provoking us to live confidently before God. Who we are in, in God's Son, who we are in Christ, our union with Him should affect how we live and how we believe. But notice we also experience comfort from love. I think this is a, a two-way kind of love. It is, first of all, the love of God Himself that has been poured out into our lives, not only bringing us to faith, but assuring us that we are His. And out of the overflow of that pouring of love, our love back to God the Father. Both these realities are evidenced by our fellowship or participation in the Spirit of God. Now, a lot of this, think about how Paul begins his appeal for unity. He starts with God Himself. Could there ever be in the, in the history of the world or what is to come a being more unified than God Himself? No. Perfect harmony and unity from all of eternity past to all of eternity future. There will never be a time when God is at odds with Himself. And He says, you have been given the blessing of sharing in that experience of the triune God because of your salvation. It is the experience of all true believers. And so we understand that the central truth that unites us as Christians is the gospel of Christ and the experience of life with God that comes from that faith in Christ. That has implications for how we live. It has implications for how we think about one another and look at one another even as we gathered together here this morning. Derek Thomas is a Christian professor who um, has also served as a pastor and an author. Originally, uh, he's from Wales. He grew up in a home there that did not know the gospel of Christ. But somewhere along the line, someone gave him John Stott's little book, Basic Christianity, and encouraged him to read it. And there, guess what Stott laid out? Basic Christianity. Who God is, who we are, why we need Christ, and the necessity of responding by faith. And God began to use that little book to draw Tom, Derek Thomas to himself. 
He went down the road to a, a newsstand in this tiny little Welsh town uh, in order to buy a Bible, and the only one he could find was a children's Bible. Now, some people wouldn't be caught dead carrying a children's Bible around. In fact, I remember back when Harry Potter was at its zenith, the publisher was encouraged to publish alternate paperback versions that had a more adult-looking cover so that when people were on their way to work on the tube uh, reading Harry Potter, it would not be immediately obvious they were reading a kid's book. But here's the thing. God was working in Thomas's life, and therefore, he had a hunger for the Word that said, I don't care if it's a children's book. It's the Bible. He bought it, he read it, and God opened his heart to believe it. Thomas says that because he had become a Christian, he suddenly found himself with an important part of his life that he could not share with his family. They're all unbelievers. And as he began attending church, the thought struck him one day as he looked around, this, this is now my family. All of us who know God through faith in Christ have a unique bond that transcends any physical family relations. The tie of our faith family is not bound by the blood in our veins, but the shed blood of our Savior for us. Thus in Him we have known, as Paul says, the affection to and from one another, as well as the specific acts of sympathy or mercy that God brings into our life even through one another. Paul says that if you are saved, and I know that you are, and who you are in Christ, the, the, the relationship that you have experienced with Him brings you into the fellowship of the triune God with one another. It should change how we think about those who claim the name of Christ. So how does Paul prepare for his exhortation that we be unified by making this impassioned, heartfelt appeal to our common experience as God's people? That leads to the appeal itself that we see in verse 2. This is the second thing that we see this morning, the appeal for spiritual unity. The appeal for spiritual unity. Verses 1 through 4 form one long sentence in the original language, and that one sentence is built around a single command that we find in verse 2. Complete my joy. This joy that Paul speaks about is the joy that comes from everything that he said in verse 1, a shared experience of the gospel. Yet like the moon, his joy can wax and wane. His joy can be incomplete or it can be complete. It can be less or it can be full. And he says, dear Philippians, dear loved ones, I want you to make full, to bring completion to my joy. How, Paul? What can we do? He says, by being of the same mind. That's the, that's the definition of spiritual unity. But what does it mean? Being of the same mind means more or less like it sounds, thinking the same way. But that doesn't mean it's limited to just the thought process that go on in our minds. Nor does it mean that we have to uh, be kind of little cookie cutter Christians that always believe the exact same things about every issue under the sun. No, it's rather about a mindset, an essential gospel-shaped outlook that directs how we feel, and how we live. That's what Paul is aiming at here. What does it look like when a people come together and live out of the same mind? What does it look like? What should it look like at Crossway to have spiritual unity? Well, Paul unpacks it in the rest of verse 2. He says that we will have the same love being in full accord and of one mind. So first, we will have the same love. We will have the same love for one another. Paul has already prayed for their love in chapter 1. Listen to what he said to them. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge 
and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's the kind of love that Paul prays for the Philippians to have. That's the kind of love that should be evident in us and work to bind us together in unity. Second, Paul says that spiritual unity is about being in full accord. Being in full accord. Now, depending on what translation you have this morning, you probably are not seeing full accord. Uh, In fact, I think every single translation has something different there because this phrase is rare and therefore hard to translate. But I think essentially the way Paul uses it, and because lots of other scholars say so, and I trust them, I think that what he's talking about here is harmony that comes from sharing a common life. So H.B. Charles says the difference here is that while we love speaks to how we treat one another, this here, this idea of being one accord speaks to how we feel about one another. It's about many people living with the same mind, heart, and soul. By way of example, he goes on to say that if, if we are of the same accord, if we are one accord, we will be able to look at one another and say this, I feel the anxiety of your fears. I feel the emptiness of your loneliness. I feel the frustration of your problems. I feel the pain of your sorrow. I feel the weight of your burdens. And we aren't just somehow removed from the situation as if we're looking at it objectively on a news story. We are part of the lives of one another and therefore we, we feel a deep sense of connection to one another. As Paul would say in, in 1 Corinthians you know, if one part of your body gets hurt, is not the whole affected, right? So if I, if I stub my toe, bumbling around in the dark looking for, for something, you know, it's not just like the toe kind of throbs on its own and I go on my weary way, right? I, I throw my toe, I'm going, oh, ah, like the whole body is affected by that one little pain. And Paul says the same thing should be with the people of God. When one person rejoices and has something happy, it should overflow to rejoicing for all of us. When one person feels pain, all of us should share in that pain. That's what it means to be of one accord. Finally, he says, if we are to experience real spiritual unity, we will be of one mind, of one mind. This is about a common purpose. Like a cruise missile set by a laser guidance system, we do not deviate from our course together. We seek after God's purpose for our lives and we live it out together not just well god's got a purpose for my life and i'm going over here and god's got a purpose for my life and i'm going over here and god's got a purpose for my life and over here no together as the people of god we acknowledge we have a single purpose what is it paul's already told us that we ought to be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel that's our one purpose and we ought to be united we ought to be together in that pursuit now, thinking about this picture of spiritual unity, the logical question that must be asked is, is this, does this describe Crossway now? Is this how we plan to live in the future? But, but, but let me ratchet it up a little bit more. Let me make it a little bit more personal. D- don't miss this. Remember again why Paul wanted the Philippians to live this way, to not be divided to not have people angry and fighting with one another, to not have some people lobbying for this, some people lobbying for this, but to be together, unified. What did he say? To make his joy complete. Paul planted the church in Philippi. 
In fact, it was the first church he planted in Europe. It probably had a special place in his heart. He pastored that church. He cared for those people. He still cared for them even after he had left and continued on with the gospel work. So we think about application. Let's think strategically and even soberly for a moment. How will you seek to bring joy to your pastors? Not just the new man who will stand here week after week, but all of your pastors, Richard, Doug, other men that God will raise up in the future. Do you want them to be happy? Do you want them to be joyful in their service to God, their service of shepherding you? Then how are you going to help make that happen? Paul says the way to make that happen is to be unified one with another. To be those marked by the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, to be united in Christ. That's one way that a pastor, a new pastor, your existing pastors will know that you love them, that you want joy in their heart, is that you will seek to be unified. Paul doesn't just say what we should do. He also tells us how we actually ought to achieve it. And that's what we see in the remaining verses. Here we see the practice of spiritual unity. The practice of spiritual unity. So, so far, Paul has given us a very simple but beautiful picture of what life together should look like as the people of God. But how do we achieve it? What threats to unity must we overcome? What encouragements to unity must we strive for? Notice what Paul says in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So clear, so simple, yet so hard to achieve. Because pride runs deep in our souls. It's what led Adam and Eve to sin in the first place. And we, their descendants, have followed suit ever since. Our entire culture runs seemingly on pride. We love to brag about our two kids if we're listening to someone brag about their one kid. We love to brag about our 5% raise if we're listening to someone else brag about their 3% raise. Do, do, do you feel that pull? Do you feel that temptation? Do you see that happening like I do? It's no different than pastors get together. It, it, it's frankly sad and easy to see the one who is marked by pride when the first question asked by a pastor when they meet you is, how big is your church? What are your numbers? What kind of ministries do you have? The, the mark of a spiritual man is to say, what is God doing at your church? That being said, I love comedian Brian Regan's bit on this whole bragging and pride thing. He says he would just once like to be at some swanky Hollywood party, listening to people go on and on about their hotels, about their jets and their Jaguars, and he would like to be one of the only handful of people, of men even, in NASA who when all of the dust settled in those one-upmanship games could just take a sip of his drink and say, I walked on the moon. I mean, you're not topping that, right? I mean, no matter what you've done to say, eh, I walked on the moon. I mean, it's done. You, you've won. 
And he has this whole bit called, I walked on the moon. And, and the, the, the whole thing is, man, I'd like to be able to have that ultimate one-upmanship. And you know what Paul says? He says, if we're to be unified, that whole mindset has to die. It has to shrivel up, be put in the ground, and wither away, never to be seen again. We need to drive a gospel-shaped nail through the heart of pride and pursue spiritual humility. And the evidence, he says, that we're on the right track of doing that is seen when what? We count others more significant than ourselves, and when each of us looks not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. In other words, to do the really hard thing of playing second fiddle. If you're in an orchestra, if you all know anything about music, everyone wants first chair. Nobody wants second chair. Nobody wants second chair. Because what does that say? You're second best. You're of second importance. In the eyes of some, you are of second worth. And the struggle for us is to say, not I'll settle for second chair, but I will gladly take second chair. Let this other person have first chair. Think about how hard that is. I'm tired, I'm run down, and suddenly my kids are clamoring for my attention. In that moment, I have a decision to make. I could easily count myself more significant than them and say, go away, I'm tired, not right now. Or I can count their interest as more important than my own and say, sure, what do you have for me? What do you want to do today? Or I'm in bed, it's late, the phone rings, the church member needs to talk or needs some help that requires me not just to get out of bed, but to get dressed and leave my house. How easy is it to make excuses to not come alongside them and serve them, thinking more highly of myself than I should. I'll just confess, I did that once, and I, and I still regret it years ago. Years later, I still regret doing that. Of leaving that person in need because I felt like it was Saturday night, I need sleep, I've got to preach in the morning, I'll be there tomorrow. And it's frankly haunted me ever since. Because that person died, and I never got to speak to them again. I was at their bedside while they were unresponsive. They might have heard me talking with them, praying with them, but I have no idea if they heard my voice before they entered into eternity and the presence of their God with the comfort of the gospel in their mind and on their heart. On the level of life together, many times as a church, we move or seek to move in one direction. We, we come around a certain study for a certain season because we think, at least the elders do, it will be beneficial for all of us to, to be on the same page or we have a ministry that we want to emphasize. And perhaps for you, you don't have an interest in those things. Perhaps you've even felt it was old hat or somehow beneath you or it would even inconvenience you in some way. And rather than counting others more significant than yourself, rather than being part of a community that God calls you to be in, you've looked to your own interest and you've bailed. So I don't have to do that to be a good Christian. I don't have to do that to be a good church member. So I'm gone. I don't, I don't want to be a part of that. I have other things I would rather do instead. Maybe even thought things like this. I don't want to waste the time. I don't want to spend that much money on gas. Now, uh, let's just be honest. We don't talk that way. But sometimes we think that way. And it's an indicator that we're not where Paul wants us to be. We're not where God wants us to be when it comes to spiritual unity when it comes to humility and willingly playing in the second chair. 
You know, when I was growing up, I used to hear all about, and even in college, it's pastoral studies, I used to be warned about those people who would give too much to God and not enough time for their families, especially men. It was almost like a warning sign. Now, men, you better be careful. Make sure you prioritize those families. And I thought, oh, good advice, good advice. But as I got older, you know, I grew up through about three different churches, served in three other churches before I came here as pastor, not in any kind of full-time way, but through internships and deaconing and lay ministry and other things. And can I tell you, I have yet to find any evidence that such a Christian exists. I mean, I think, I think there's more evidence for Bigfoot and Loch Ness than there is a Christian who gives too much time to God and not enough for family. I mean, that person could exist. I just have never seen any evidence of it. I've never seen specimen A that can be put on display and say, this is the person. Here's the case study for counseling. I've never seen it. I think that our struggle today, at least in American Christianity, is not serving one another too much but too little. You know, you have to understand, church is more than just a, a gas station where you come and get your spiritual tank filled up. It's not just coming and saying, oh, I, I did my duty. It, church, by definition, is those that are gathered. That's what the word means, the congregation. In fact, Tyndale, when he did his first uh, English translation from the Lord, he didn't say church. He said the congregation, the assembly. That's what it means, gathering together of God's people. That's what church is about. It's about community. It's about sacrificial service. It's about a common life lived among many different people with many different interests, but around one common faith and purpose under one Lord, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, Paul says that it's by focusing on him we begin to have our hearts and our minds turned to live in humility and love with one another. Many years ago, D.A. Carson interviewed Carl F.H. Henry before he passed away. Most of you probably don't have any idea who Carl F.H. Henry is. Some of you might know. But he was one of the most important figures in evangelicalism in the last 50 or 60 years. He started the magazine Christianity Today. He wrote a multi-volume theology series on God, Scripture, and authority which shapes seminarians today. He brought together British and the American church by befriending both John Stott, who was the leader of British evangelicalism, and Billy Graham, the leader of American evangelicalism, and having them sit down together and being the mutual friend that that managed this tie. We go on and on and on, but uh, if you know anything about church history in the U.S. or even in the world in the last 60 years, his name will show up again and again and again. And one time, as Carson is interviewing him, he said, which frankly was pretty... Uh, an awkward question, I would think. Dr. Henry, you have been at the center of attention evangelicalism for over half a century. How have you stayed humble? Well, that's a good question that I want to hear the answer to, but I don't want to ask it. Nevertheless, Henry very quickly replied, Don, it is hard to be prideful when you're standing at the foot of the cross. And I think that's what Paul says in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's the key to the rest of the text because it stands between Paul's exhortation and explanation of unity through humility and love and what comes next, which is the example of humility and love shown by Christ. How is it that we seek to stay humble? It is by looking at Christ. He is the secret key to humility. Paul goes on and reminds us That though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
We have salvation because Jesus humbled himself. He thought only of his own interest, but counted others as more significant than himself. He is the embodiment of everything Paul has talked about in verses 1 through 4. Christ is central to our lives. First, as the object of our faith. We understand we do not imitate Christ in order to be saved, but because we've already been saved. No amount of working at humility and, and unity and love is going to earn God's favor. Rather, God's favor has already been poured out upon us, lavished upon us through our faith in Christ. Nevertheless, Christ is not just the object of our faith. He is also the example of our faith. Only His work will bring us to God, giving us forgiveness of sins, but also being accepted by God. We must continually fix our eyes on Him, seeking to follow in His footsteps. That's how we will fulfill the passage here. If we just think about unity as a thing and seek after it, it's not going to work. But if we prayerfully seek after unity as we put our face towards Christ, then we'll be amazed at what God does in our life. This is why A.W. Tozer says this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So also 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscience and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Few things delight the devil more than disunity among God's people. Why? Because Jesus said that one of the marks of our salvation, that we were his disciples, was our love for one another. And unity is both seen in and flows out of our love for one another. So as we begin this joyful, difficult task in earnest of seeking a new pastor, the question we have to ask ourselves is, how will we do it? Both as a church and as individuals, will we do it with casual indifference or caustic disruptions? Will we be jockeying to have our needs met and our voices heard above all the others such that we care nothing for anyone else or the good of this church? Or will we come together at the feet of the risen Christ? seeking His glory in His church? Will we reflect on the outset of our, at our own sinful hearts before God and evaluate the fruit of our lives? Are we bearing fruit that seeks and brings unity among God's people? If not, will we repent of times when we have neglected spiritual unity with God's people and strive for something better? Let's pray. Father, we lament the, the depth and the breadth of pride and arrogance and self-centeredness that runs through our hearts. Father, even at the level of a church, we can take pride in who we are and what we do compared to others and look down on them. But Father, that's not the attitude, it's not the calling you have on our lives. Rather, it is one of loving fellowship, God. It is being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of, and of one mind. God, help us to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Father, help us to count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of us look not only to our own interests, our own concerns, our own desires, our own needs, but also to the interests of others. 
Father, we know that this will only come if we have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. So help us, God, to preach the gospel to ourselves, to be reminded of our sinfulness and our failings and our need for spiritual help. But Father, the endless fount of living water, the endless supply of spiritual power that comes to us through faith in Christ, knowing that our hearts will be changed because you have promised to do it. God, hasten that change. Make us to be a people that not only brings one another joy and leadership joy, but brings you joy by being united in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.